morning, family. My name's Emily Bally, and I have the privilege of serving on the worship team, the prayer team, and kids' ministry. Today's scripture passage is from Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, and Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, from the NIV. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, and he wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is God's word. Thank you, Emily. Definitely the cutest scripture reader that we've had so far. That's my wife, in case you were wondering why I was being weird. <laughs> Can we pray together? <laughs> Lord, thank you so much for your holy and perfect word that is sharper than a two-edged sword and able to divide between flesh and marrow and able to speak into the hearts of people. We come to your word today with everything happening in our lives and in our hearts and our, our world and in our minds. We just, we bring it to the the table of the Lord today, and we, we ask that you would minister to us now by your word. I make myself available. ask that you would anoint my lips, that my heart would be synced up with yours. We ask that you would speak to us as only you can, in Jesus' name, amen. So for the last several weeks, we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer. If you've been here on Sundays, then you know that. And uh, we finished last week, and as we finished last week, Brian reminded us that the Lord's Prayer was not instructions in uh, what to pray, but rather a model of how to pray, with what heart we should approach God with. And uh, as I was sharing with my wife Emily this last week, the passage um, that I was going to be preaching on, she said so honestly and um, vulnerably, she was like, gosh, I, I feel like I know exactly what it's like to be both the tax collector and the Pharisee. In fact, I'm pretty sure that over the span of the same church service, I see both of these proclivities in me and how true that is for all of us. But in order to really understand the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, we have to understand first, what in the world is a Pharisee and why in the world was a tax collector so looked down upon? Well, to start, the tax collectors weren't just looked 
down upon in ancient Israel. They were like the scum of Jewish society. And here's why. When the Roman Empire wanted to grow, the way that it grew is it would go into a new territory and would by force conquer those people. And then it would set up their Roman government and authority there. And when they would set up their government and authority, part of how they, uh, what they did there was that they would uh, force the people to pay them taxes. And so they would employ these private Roman contractors to be in charge of collecting the taxes. But those Roman contractors would then employ local people from that community to actually go out and do the physical work of collecting these taxes. And this is exactly what happened in Israel after they were conquered by Rome in 63 BC. So you can imagine how this put a divide between the average normal citizen in Israel and these Jewish tax collectors who were their people now collecting taxes from them on behalf of Rome. But it gets worse because Rome didn't pay these local tax collectors to do this job. The only way that they made money was to extort it from their own people. And so they would do whatever they needed to do. They would lie, they would cheat, they would fudge the numbers, they would threaten jail time in order to get paid. And often because they were uh, greedy in heart, they would go above and beyond in order to make a lot of money. And a lot of them did make a lot of money. They were religious and political traitors in Hebrew society. In today's culture, the only real social equivalent would be someone like a a drug dealer or a sex trafficker. That's how bad it was. They were those who preyed on society, who made money off of others' bodies, like someone uh, making a living by taking advantage of the vulnerable. The Pharisees, on the other hand, had justly earned the reputation as the religious elite. They surpassed everyone else in their observance of religious law and prided themselves on what they felt was an exact interpretation of God's word. They were the most highly esteemed group in all of Jewish society. You could count on a Pharisee to love the law of God and to do everything necessary to uphold it in every way. No Pharisee would ever, for instance, take advantage of one of their fellow countrymen in order to gain themselves. Like everyone else, they too were victims of the tax collectors. You could not have picked two opposite people. To read this parable through the eyes of a first century Jewish person then, you really have to see the Pharisee through the eyes of a first century Jewish person with the expectation that the Pharisee's the good guy here. I'm expecting something good to happen to him in this parable. And the tax collector as the criminal, as the crook. And so you're going to have this horribly bad expectation of what's about to happen to the tax collector. And so you can imagine that when Jesus begins his story by saying a tax collector and a Pharisee go up to the temple to pray, you can imagine what everyone is for sure thinking like, oh dang, dude, this is, this is about to get bad. Like Jesus is about to rebuke some tax, co- I hope there's some tax collectors around here because Jesus is about to rebuke somebody. But that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't speak to the tax collectors. In fact, he's also not just speaking to any normal Jewish person either. He's talking to a very specific group of people. Jesus says who he's speaking to, or the passage says who he's speaking to in verse nine of our passage when it says, 
that Jesus spoke to those who were, quote, confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Who is that? The Pharisees, of course. There they were, probably grouped together, listening to Jesus as he spoke to the crowds. And Jesus turns to them and tells them the story of two people who go up to the temple to pray. One, a respected Pharisee. The other, a rejected tax collector. It is a case study of two archetypes, the self-righteous and the humble. And a, an illustration of the two ways that you can approach God, the self-righteous approach and the humble approach. So today we'll look at both approaches and then we'll finish by seeing which one is justified before God and why. First, the self-righteous approach. I'd like to use a very simple description of the heart posture of the self-righteous based on what we see in this passage for our purposes today. Simply put, the self-righteous have a high view of self and a low view of God. Another way to say it is an inflated view of self and a deflated view of God. And everything that happens in this passage happens really as a result of this. So it says that the tax collector comes in and he stands at a distance. Most scholars believe that the reason this detail is included is because it's a way of implying that the Pharisee, instead of standing at a distance, actually stood at the front where he believed he belonged, close to the presence of God. High view of self. And so he comes in with his head held high, respected by the people, because in his view, he had done very well to live righteously, observing all of God's law. And so he feels a sense of entitlement to walk right to the front of the temple and close to the presence of God. And then he begins to pray. And it says that he prays, and most of our translations say by himself. But a, a literal rendering of the original language here actually says that he prayed to himself. Which is so interesting when you read this because you wonder as you're reading the story, like, who is this guy there for? Is he there for God? Or is he there for himself? Because he doesn't show up to praise God. It seems like he's there to praise himself. In fact, after his one initial mention of God, he never refers to God again. But he does refer to someone else five times in his short little two-sentence prayer. He refers to himself. And when he prays, he prays like this. Verse 11, God, I thank you that I am. Let's stop right there. I thank you that I am. When your prayer begins with the words, I am, there might be something wrong. It's literally the opposite of how Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer, right? You know how it goes. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, come on. Hallowed be your name. Y'all don't know this thing? Let's do it again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is how Jesus said, he said, when you pray, start your prayer like this, declaring who you're talking to and what he's like. Our Father in heaven, that's who you're talking to. What's he like? He's holy. Father, you are holy. When you pray, pray like this. But this dude doesn't show up and say, God, you are. He shows up and says, God, I am. If your prayers begin with a declaration of who you are and what you've done instead of who God is and what he's done, I'm not saying for sure, but 
there might be something wrong. He continues, God, I thank you that I am, I am what? Not like the other people. Okay, he's going to bring in everybody else to, to describe who he is. You know there's something wrong, right? When you're using everybody else to describe how good you are. I know that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He says it loud enough for the dude down the hallway or whatever to hear him. You ever heard people pray like this? I call it prayer preaching. Where you're like, is he talking to God or is he talking to me right now? They start, it sounds like they're praying because they're like, dear Lord. But everything that comes after it is like, is he preaching? I thought he was praying. I, I heard one recently. This is a fun one. I heard one recently in a prayer meeting. Somebody said, dear Lord, I was reading Romans chapter 9 the other day. And I saw this word propitiation. And so I started doing a study of the word propitiation. And in the Greek, it actually means a sacrifice that satisfies. And so if we, and they went on to preach this sermon, but it sounded like a prayer because it started out with dear Lord. The Lord doesn't need to know the Greek word. He knows the Greek word, man. Who are you talking to right now? I mean, it's fine that you're preaching a sermon. It's okay to encourage everybody with a little truth from God's word. Just don't call it a prayer. Call it a sermon. Sorry, I'm, a, I'm, I'm getting a little crazy right now. So this dude starts prayer preaching, right? Now, the essence of his, his prayer isn't, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? He, he's saying, I'm, thank you, God, that I'm, I haven't fallen into grievous sins like this. It's appropriate to be thankful to God that you haven't turned into a thief or into an adulterer or into an evildoer. This man hadn't stolen from anybody. He had been faithful to his wife. He had even gone above and beyond in his fasting and his tithing. We should be thankful for God's power and grace in our lives to keep us from sin. But the Pharisee doesn't actually mention the power or grace of God to keep him from sin. In fact, there is no mention of God's work at all. Rather, he sees his righteousness as something that he has done and that has come from himself. He is self-righteous. And so after his initial mention of God, his prayer is solely focused on who he is and what he has done. He doesn't say a lot, but everything that comes out of his mouth is boasting about himself. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul uses the word boast over 20 times. When we hear that word boast or we see somebody boast, we have a, a disdain for it, right? Like, I don't want to be a person who's boasting about what I've done, bragging about all the things that I've done. And when I meet somebody like that, honestly, I'm like, how fast can I get out of here? We should feel allergic to the idea of boasting. But there is a kind of boasting that God encourages. In 2 Corinthians, here's one of the examples. In chapter 1, verse 12, Paul writes this. He says, now this is our boast. Okay, he's about to boast. Now this is our boast. We have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. Paul is boasting about his conduct. He's saying, me and the people that I minister with, we have conducted ourselves with godly integrity, with sincerity. He's boasting about his actions. But check it out. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. 
Paul is boasting about his righteous conduct, but where does the righteous conduct come from? Relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. There is a way to boast about your righteousness. It is to acknowledge where the source of your righteousness came from in the first place. There is a way to boast about you staying far from sin. That's something to praise God about. That's something to proclaim. That's something to declare. That's something to shout from the rooftops. There is a way to boast about even the wonderful things happening through your life. It is to declare that the power of those things has come from God. You've stayed away from the snares of sin. Amazing. Thank God for that. But thank God for his grace on your life that has allowed you to stay away from the snares of sin. It's not because you tried hard or worked hard, Christian. It's not because you have amazing self-control. Your amazing success is not because you have incredible business salve. It is the grace of God on your life. When the self-righteous, what they fail to recognize is this. They fail to recognize that their source of all the good is God. The inflated view of self and the deflated view of God go hand in hand. They are like two levers on an old school scale. You lift one and the other goes down. And so when you make much of yourself, it is almost impossible to make much of God. On the other hand, when you make much of God, it is almost impossible to make much of yourself. The implication of an inflated view of your own power, your own ability, and your own righteousness is a deflated view of God's power, God's ability, and God's righteousness. But what also happens as a result of this inflated view of self is that everything else starts to get out of whack as well. So not only... Does this cause you to have a deflated view of God? But as you become consumed with your own accomplishments, it blinds you from seeing the needs of other people. This tax collector was showing up to beg God for mercy. Yes, he was a wretched man, but he was showing up to beg God for mercy. The Pharisee could have helped this guy. He could have helped like shepherd him to the throne of grace. He knew like he should have known where, where to go and how to get there. But instead, he's so absorbed with himself that he can't even see the poor, pitiful state of this man who has come to repent. Instead, he props himself up on the failures of the tax collector. His self-esteem seems to ride on the exposure of the moral failures of other people. He is full of self, but void of God and void of God's mercy and void of God's heart. This is what happens when we approach God with a high view of self. We end up having a low view of God and then a low view of others. This is the self-righteous approach. The humble approach is quite different. The humble don't have a high view of self, but they also don't have a low view of self. It is neither overinflated or, hear this, deflated. See, to correct an inflated view of self is not to have a deflated view of self. It is to have a right-sized view of self. So in contrast to the self-righteous, the humble have a right view of self and a right view of God. And everything that comes after that is a result of this right understanding of self and God. 
The Pharisee was so blinded by his clean living that he couldn't see the depravity of his own heart. But the tax collector is well aware of his desperate state. He has a right understanding of his depravity before God. And we see it in the way that the short scene plays out. In contrast to the Pharisee's facade, the tax collector comes to the temple and instead of walking right to the front, he actually stands at a distance. He is keenly aware of the fact that there is nothing that he has done that would earn him a place close to the presence of God. And while the Pharisee is arrogantly holding his head high because of his great accomplishments, the tax collector won't even lift his eyes to heaven. And as the Pharisee puffs his chest in self-boasting, the tax collector beats his chest at the realization of his sin. He doesn't play God the highlight reel from the last month of his life because he knows the implications of his lifestyle. Instead, he uses one word to describe himself. He says, a sinner. It means somebody who falls short of God's perfect standard. In the original language, it doesn't actually say a sinner. It actually says the sinner. In other words, I am everything that people say I am. I'm not going to try to make myself look better. I'm also not going to try to compare myself to other sinners, although there are plenty of other sinners. I'm just going to own it. I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to call a spade a spade. I am the sinner. Just like the Pharisee, the tax collector does vocalize out loud his prayer, right? He says it for everyone to hear, but there's a difference here because the, the Pharisee, proclaims his virtues. It's one thing to out loud declare your virtues. It's another thing to out loud declare your sin. He is brutally honest with God, with himself, and with everyone around him. And it is this honesty that leads him to a humble and contrite heart. This is so important. This is actually key here. You cannot have humility without honesty. You cannot have humility without honesty. If you are not honest with yourself about your sin, you will not be able to come to God with a humble heart. It's impossible. It is his honesty and full transparency that allows him to have a right-sized view of himself and then therefore a right-sized view of God. So while the Pharisee has this inflated view of self and a deflated view of God, the tax collector has this right-sized view of self and a right-sized view of God. The, the, the Pharisee has a, an, an inflated view of his power, his ability and his righteousness, and therefore in response, a deflated view of God's power, God's ability and God's righteousness. But the tax collector, because he has a right-sized view, because he is honest about his own shortcomings, he is able to acknowledge that God is the one with all of the power. God is the one with all of the ability, and God is the one with all of the righteousness. And so as he is honest with himself about his sin, he turns to the only one who has the power, ability, and righteousness to do something about his sinful state. And here's how he prays in verse 13. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This wayward child of God has been excluded from corporate worship and ostracized from the godly, but he knows exactly where to go and how to pray in his pitiful state. 
It's a direct quote from King David. It's the first line of Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God. God said of King David that he was a man after God's own heart. But David had a, a, fair, a terrible fall. Sometime through his life, at a time when kings were supposed to be out at war with their soldiers, David stayed home. And one night he sees this woman bathing naked on her rooftop and he invites her in and he cheats on his wife with this woman who was married to a man who was out at battle. This woman gets pregnant and in an attempt to cover up his sin, David calls her husband home and says, hey, you should go be with your wife while you're here, hoping that they'll sleep together and he'll be able to cover up the fact that he got this woman pregnant. But this man is so honorable and so full of integrity that he says, no, I can't, I can't do that, man. All my brothers are out at war. I'm not gonna go home and enjoy being with my wife. And so he doesn't. And so David goes to plan B. He tells the commander of his army, hey, put this guy out on the front lines of battle. And when it's in the heat of the battle, pull everybody back but him and allow him to be killed. That's exactly what happens. So David plots this guy's murder. He's killed. And then David takes this woman as his wife. It's a horrific story. And it seems like David is able to just like go on without any uh, real remorse. He's just like, he just keeps living until a few months later when the prophet Nathan comes and confronts him and he puts a mirror in front of David's face essentially in an attempt to show David who he is and what he's done. And, and for the first time, David sees his sin for what it is and he is convicted deeply by the Holy Spirit and he repents, he responds and he writes this beautifully honest, humble song of confession and repentance in Psalm 51 when he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And God does just that. He has compassion on David. He has mercy on him. He blots out his transgressions. He washes away his iniquity and cleanses him from his sin and he restores him. Every person in Israel knew the story of King David and his great failure and the story of his great restoration. The tax collector's hope in this moment is that if God could forgive the horrendous sins of King David, that maybe he could forgive his sins too. And so pulling a page out of King David's songbook, he prays to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Mercy. It means not getting what you do deserve. This man knew what he deserved. He is not asking God to treat him according to what he has done. He's not asking God to treat him according to his goodness. He's asking God to treat him according to God's goodness. He is saying, please don't judge me according to what I have done. Please do not treat me like I deserve Rather, have mercy on me. Hold back from me what I do deserve because God's mercy was his only hope and he knew it. What polar opposites approached God that day in prayer? One of them, the scum of the earth. The other, the cream of Hebrew society. One infamous for his sins. The other, famous for his righteousness. One lowly, the other arrogant. But only one went away justified. So which one 
is justified. By way of a little synopsis of both here, the Pharisees' approach went something like this. I am good. I, I know I have done good. Like, really good. Therefore, I deserve to be here. And so, any compassion I may receive from God is certainly just God simply responding to who I am and what I've done. The tax collector's approach was quite different. He showed up saying, I know I'm not good. I know I don't deserve to be here. I know that I have done nothing to earn the compassion of God. In fact, any compassion that God shows me is certainly not because of who I am and what I'm done, but because of who he is. Jesus finishes the parable by saying, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other went home justified before God. Why? For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted exalted. What's ironic about this story is the one who arrogantly shows up and comes close because he's entitled is actually the one that is sent away by God. But the one who shows up and stands far away is actually the one who is brought close by God. Why? Because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. It is the way that God just responds, period. It is the way that God responds to the self-righteous and the arrogant. He, he resists, he sends them away. But it is, also, it is the way that God responds to the humble. Those who show up with a contrite, repentant heart, God brings them near. It's just what he does every time. It's what he does every time. There is no amount of righteous living or righteous acting that could ever make you accepted by God or make you flip. God's not gonna, he, he can't, he, it's not in him to be like, oh dang, you've been trying hard, come on in. Wow, you did a really good job. Come on in. It's not even on his register. Why? Because his holiness and his righteousness is so far above ours that our most righteous deeds don't even register as good to him. They don't even show up on the scale of like on the page, bottom line, baseline good. Our best deeds are still off the graph. The Bible says that our most righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. It's not because he's snobby, it's because he's holy. He's so holy and so righteous. His standard is so far above ours. There's nothing we could do to ever earn ourselves a place in his house, to ever earn ourselves a place of being accepted by him. The only way to be accepted is to humble yourself. So how do we humble ourselves? Well, it's no mistake that the next thing that happens in Luke 18 is this. I'll put it on the screen. Jesus called the children to himself and said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Who does God welcome into his kingdom? those who become like little children. What are little children like? They are unintentionally humble. They are needy. They are messy. Somebody with toddlers say amen. <laughs> they are honest. They are anything but self-sufficient. We, uh, 
we moved our baby girl to college last weekend. And uh, those of you who've had to do that know how bittersweet it is. Those of you guys with toddlers are maybe like, dang, that sounds kind of nice. <laughs> but it's, it's, it, it's, it's been a really bittersweet week, right? It's bitter because we actually like our kids. Um, and so we like having our daughter Selah around. And, you know, it's, it's time, though. She doesn't need us in the same way that she used to. And there's something bitter about that. But it's sweet because she shouldn't need us like she used to. She's 18 years old. Like, she's an adult now. She shouldn't need us like she used to. It's time for her to move on to the next season of life. But when she was a little child, she needed us for 100% of everything. In fact, she had no choice but to need us. It really does feel like just a few years ago, it really does go fast, man, that she couldn't clothe herself, she couldn't feed herself, she couldn't change her own diapers, she couldn't even make herself fall asleep. She needed us for every single thing in her life. Little children are dependent on their parents for everything. How do we receive the grace of God? God gives grace to the humble. What do the humble look like? They look like little children. What do little children look like? Like people who are fully dependent on someone else for everything. And so we come to God like little children, fully dependent on him for everything. This tax collector did nothing to earn the favor of God. He just came needy. He came desperate. He came humble. He came like a little child. And he went away justified. But you know what the best part of being justified is? And I'll close with this. Best part of being justified is this, that you are brought close to God. The Pharisee, in his inflated view of self, has a deflated view of God, right? Well, the tax collector, the humble approach is right-sized view of self, right-sized view of God, the one with all the power, all the ability, all the righteousness. Here's what's crazy about God's mercy. God comes down and picks up the humble and seats them with him in the heavenly places and gives them all the fullness of who he is, fills them up with all the fullness of who he is, giving them all of his power, all of his ability, and all of his righteousness. The humble person is not full of self. They are emptied of self, but they do not stay empty. They are filled with all the fullness of who God is. The one who didn't deserve, who knew he didn't deserve anything is actually the one who shows up and gets everything that he needed. He gets God. Why? Well, it's the premise of the story. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Not only did this man go away justified that day, he went away full. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, as followers of you, as people who have put our trust in you, we just want to say thank you for coming down, humbling yourself, even to the point of death, 
dying on the cross, raising from the dead so that we could be justified so that we could come into relationship. Thank you so much. We just want to say thank you. We acknowledge this morning that your kingdom is an upside down kingdom. It is totally different than the way the kingdom of the world works, the way that us and our humanity see things. We want to invite people in when they've proven themselves. You're like, you can't prove yourself to me. I invite you in because I love you and because of who I am and my character, not because of what you've done. It is backwards to us, God, but we want to humble ourselves today and confess how much we need it. Confess how much we need you. We ask that you would expand our understanding of these things so that we might in turn worship you now. We're gonna enter into this second set of worship now. And uh, before we do that, I, I just wanna give anybody in here an opportunity who has not put their trust in Jesus to do that this morning. You need to know today that you were created to have a relationship with God and there is a longing in your soul that you think is actually a longing for other things. Contentment, in, found in relationships, maybe it's family or success or people approving of you, building wealth, doing good things, helping people. And you try to fill this void in you with these things that are fine. They're not necessarily bad things. But you're never gonna be satisfied because that, you weren't created for those things primarily. You were created for a relationship with God. And so only in a relationship with God will that void be filled. Only in a relationship with God will that void be filled. 2,000 years ago, God sent his only son to come to earth. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. And then he went to the cross and died a death on the cross, and here's why. He took upon all of your sin on him, all the sin of all the world, generations, past, present, future, took it all on himself, and he, he paid the penalty for our sin. He died the death that you should have died so that you could live the life that he should have lived. And then he was buried in a tomb, but three days later he rose from the dead, conquering death, conquering the devil and conquering sin. And the Bible says that now those who put their trust in the finished work of Jesus are justified. Those who believe that he died on the cross and rose from the dead and those who repent from their sins and turn toward God will be justified. You will be brought up from the pit of despair into a relationship with God just like the tax collector. And so today God stands at the door of your heart and knocks stands at the door of your life and knocks. And anybody who opens up to him, he will come in. He will be with you. And so today, if you want to receive eternal life, you want your sins forgiven, you want to be brought into God's family, you want the, the void in your soul to be filled, and you want to begin to follow Jesus and fulfill the, the true destiny for your life, then all you need to do is turn your heart to him and say, yes, God, I, I believe that you sent Jesus to die for me and that he rose from the dead. I, I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven. If that's you today, would you just slip up your hand wherever you're at? 
raise it high in the air so I could see you. Yeah, I see you over here to my left. I see you right here in the middle. Anybody else, go ahead and just slip up your hand. Yeah, I see you in the back on my left. If that's you today, just pray something like this in your heart to God. God, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I need a savior. Thank you for sending Jesus to save me. I believe he died for me and rose from the dead. According to that perfect work, would you please forgive me and wash away all of my sin? I turn towards you and choose to follow you now for the rest of my life. Amen.